Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, we have a fantastic bonus episode for you. We recently published our new book, The Best Investment Writing, Volume 2. The first one was a hit, with Money Week concluding that it should be on every investor's bookshelf. But we made the second volume even better. We expanded it to include 41 hand-selected investment articles written by some of the most respected money managers and investment researchers in the world. We are really proud of it. We also thought it'd be fun to bring on some of the authors and have them read their specific chapter from the book. So that's what you're getting in today's special bonus episode. If you're interested in picking up a copy of The Best Investment Writing Volume 2, head on over to Amazon or our publisher's website, which is Harriman House. Also, know that your purchase will be benefiting charities as all the writer proceeds to go to the charity of the specific author's choosing. So enough from me. Let's get to our guest author takeover with this special bonus episode. Hi, I'm Wes Gray, and I will be discussing a piece I wrote for Meb Favor's new book, The Best Investment Writing. And the title of the piece is Factor Investing is More Art and Less Science. And this piece, I think, is fairly timely because in this day and age, it seems like everyone has become a quantitative factor investor. And a lot of the pitch from a lot of providers is that factor investing is very precise and explains the world. And investing is now a science. It's not a, you know, an art any longer. And so this piece is meant to highlight via a historical assessment of the history of factor investing in the research that frankly, it's basically a pseudoscience when you really step back and think about it. We still really don't know that much about how and why stock prices move the way they do. It's just a fact. Anyone who tells you differently is probably overstretching their take on the evidence. So without further ado, let's move into this piece. And we'll start with a quote from Albert Einstein, who is reported to have said the following, the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. I can relate. I've been doing this for 20 years plus, got a PhD in finance, was a professor of finance, wrote books and articles on finance, run an asset management company. And honestly, I think I now know less about how the stock market works now than I did 20 years ago. In fact, I probably should have just stopped studying finance after I read Ben Graham's Intelligent Investor over 20 years ago. His advice is simple, buy cheap, buy with margin of safety. Had I followed that, I think life would be a lot easier or at least a lot less complicated. And adhering to Graham's straightforward value investing ethos certainly worked out for Warren Buffett, where he says that, hey, what I'm doing today is running things through the lens and through the same thought process I learned from Ben Graham's book that I read when I was 19. So it really starts to beg the question, why should investing be complex in the first place? Asset pricing or figuring out what something should be worth seems easy in theory. And yet, when you review all this research out there dedicated to this question, there doesn't seem to be any clear silver bullet answers. Some might retort, well, valuation is easy. Figure out the expected cash flows, discount back to the present with an appropriate cost of capital or discount rate. Huh? Simple. But there's a question. What's the discount rate? Well, the discount rate is supposed to account for the risk of the expected cash flows, but what is the risk? How do we measure it? I don't think anyone knows, even now. And Warren Buffett is on record saying the following. Charlie and I, referring to Charlie Munger, his business partner, 
don't even know our own cost of capital. It's taught at business schools, but we're highly skeptical. I've never seen a cost of capital calculation that actually made sense to me. So while cost of capital is a notoriously imprecise valuation component, there is still hope. Because I think with many of the ideas out there on the playing field, factor-based risk models seem to have captured the imagination of most empirical asset pricing researchers. And before we dive into that, though, let's try to understand what is a factor-based model approach in the first place. And the way we'll address this question and many related questions throughout this article is by trying to start off with a simple illustration. Let's talk about factor investing and factor-based asset pricing through the lens of a made-up thing I'm going to have here called the Jim Cramer factor model. And this factor approach, like all factor approaches, has roots in what is deemed the arbitrage pricing theory, APT, where researchers seek to identify a set of factors, value, momentum, size, what have you, that explain the so-called cross-section of returns, or essentially the distribution of returns at a given point in time. So trying to figure out how and why stocks move the way they did. And a simple example can help clarify this concept. So let's assume, almost a little bit silly here, that the decibel level of Jim Cramer's voice on CNBC is a proxy for systematic risk in the economy. So a stock that moves stronger when Jim Cramer is louder, corresponds to more systematic risk and should therefore require higher expected returns, at least in a world where more risk equals more returns, which seems reasonable. And the simple relationship is basically the expected return on a stock is going to be equal to the risk-free rate, kind of what you can earn for free, plus some adjustment for that stock's relationship with Jim Cramer's loudness on CNBC, plus some random component, because these models are never perfect, hence the reason they're called models and not reality. Besides randomness and the baseline risk-free rate, which all assets should earn, the only thing that should drive expected performance is the exposure to this made-up Jim Cramer decibel factor. So if a stock has a strong beta or linear relationship or correlation with respect to the Jim Cramer decibel factor, then the expected stock return should be higher in the future, all else equal. With this factor investing model at hand, we can now assess the risk and return associated with a stock by simply looking at the Jim Cramer decibel risk factor exposure. If a stock earns high expected returns and has high Jim Cramer exposure, great. The model seems to work because it explains what happens in the real world. And if a stock earns low expected returns and has low Jim Cramer exposure, well, that's also great. The model seems to work. So if a researcher conducts this analysis across a large sample of stocks, across a long sample period, and confirms the results through a lot of robustness analysis, the model would be deemed the new Fahman French one-factor Cramer model in some academic paper, right? Consultants would use it. Investors would use it. The market would be efficient and everything would be happy. Heck, we might even highlight it on the Alpha Architect blog. However, what if the Jim Cramer asset pricing model started to break down? 
So let's say the model doesn't always predict what happens in asset pricing markets. Perhaps we start seeing situations where the expected returns don't match the risk profile. In other words, we see situations where stocks are in high expected returns, but don't have any measurable exposure to the Jim Cramer decibel factor. Oh no, the model no longer fits our observations. Looks like we need a better model. So what's going to happen? Well, researchers are now going to scramble to identify a better model that will explain why stocks act the way they act. Maybe they'll add new factors. Maybe they'll delete old factors. And they'll keep grinding on regressions or nowadays machine learning until the numbers sink. Well, mission complete, right? Well, perhaps not. The Jim Cramer decibel risk factor identified above is obviously an attempt at finance humor. I know, it's pretty pathetic. I get it, but I'm making an attempt, okay? Nonetheless, the description of the process mirrors the basic approach that serious academic researchers and practitioner researchers, for all intents and purposes, have used to identify factors that theoretically and empirically determine why stocks move in expectation. And while the Jim Cramer decibel factor is obviously tongue-in-cheek, some of the wilder explanatory factors that have been earnestly explored by reputable academics are not that far from the concept conceptually. In short, not all factors are created equal. Some factors are more reasonable than others. But before we dive into these factors, let's step back and just literally go through a history of the factor models, which start off with what we determine the original factor gangster, the capital asset pricing model, or CAPM, which in many respects is akin to my Jim Cramer decibel factor model. That's a one-factor model that purports to explain all stock return movements. Looking at the CAPM, it was essentially one of the earliest attempts to explain how stocks move, and it was posited in 1964 by Sharp, Littner, and Black. And the CAPM proposed something absolutely remarkable. All expected stock returns can be described via one variable, beta which essentially quantified the extent to which a stock return moved with the so-called market portfolio's return, often approximated by some broad passive index like the S&P 500. So think about that. The CAPM suggests that all expected stock price movements revolve around a single, relatively simple statistical metric. Now, the elegance of this concept, in my opinion, is arguably on par with E equals MC squared. In the 1990 Nobel Prize awarded to Harry Markowitz and Bill Sharp was probably well-deserved. Unfortunately, while this CAPM theory was beautiful, the evidence in support of the theory is extremely flawed. And academic research has now demonstrated that the relationship between beta and expected stock returns is simply too flat, i.e. low beta asset returns end up being higher than what they should have been, and high beta assets, which should earn really high returns, end up earning lower returns than what the model suggested. And there's a lot of great reviews on that research, and Fom and French have actually written a few of them. Happy to send those if you shoot us an email. That's a problem. Great theory, but doesn't have any grounding in actual data that we see in the real world. So, Either the data was measured wrong or the theory is wrong. And 
real portfolios simply don't match the cap M. In other words, knowing beta doesn't really tell you anything about expected returns. So the cap M, again, very elegant, awesome, great way to start, was quickly dumped in the graveyard of great theories that don't work in practice. So along came the CAPM apologist and new models with more factors that could help explain how and why stocks move. And the primary puzzle to solve was why did these small cap value stocks do so much better than what the CAPM predicted? This was kind of the most anomalous portfolio out there. On one hand, and these are two competing theories, small value stocks simply reflected mispricing. So there was sentiment, mispricing, behavioral issues. These stocks just earn higher returns because the market was kind of crazy at the margin. On the other hand, and a theory that's much more in line with what academics would like to highlight, is that these stocks were simply more risky. So small value stocks had something systematic about their nature that made them more volatile, more risky. And so in order to explain this side of the story, Fahm and French come to the rescue with their kind of classic model that frankly probably lays the foundation for what we all know and love as factor investing today. So in response to the failure of the CAPM and our inability as researchers to basically explain the world, in 1992, Eugene Fahm and Ken French, arguably the two greatest empirical financial economists of our time, established the empirical foundations for what many people refer to today as the Fama and French three-factor model. And this model did a much better job at explaining the various anomalies, such as size and value, which, as we highlighted previously, the CAPM does a very poor job at describing. These small value stocks earn way higher returns than they probably should. The three-factor model included the original market factor from the CAPM, but then it piles on two new factors. A long, short size portfolio, often referred to as SMB, and a long, short value factor portfolio, often referred to as HML. And so in the original 92 paper, and it's in table three, the researchers, they look at stocks from 1963 to 1990, and they highlight the relationship between beta, or general market exposure, size, how big are you, and value, how cheap are you, as measured by book to market. And they do this for all NICE, Amex, and NASDAQ traded stocks. And there's a few things to note. The slope of beta, so how does stock returns relate to just general market exposure after controlling for size and book to market and all these other things is pretty low. It's only around 15 basis points a month and it's statistically insignificant. So Fahman French conclude that beta certainly does a poor job of explaining stock return and really is the dagger to the heart of the CAPM model, at least from an empirical standpoint. Whereas when they look at the relationship between expected stock returns and size, there's a negative 15 bip a month relationship that is highly significant. So the bigger you are, the less returns you earn on average. So Fahm and French conclude that size seems to have some explanatory power. And then finally, they also look at value, which has a 50 bip a month relationship on average with expected stock returns. 
So the cheaper you are, the higher your expected stock returns are, at least with respect to cheapness as measured by book to market equity. But of course, if you use any sort of value metric of cheapness versus expensive, you will find a very similar relationship. We have visualization in the article, but I'll summarize it here. Essentially, the CAPM, when one sorts stocks into 25 portfolios along two dimensions, size and cheapness, so one of the portfolios will be a bunch of really small stocks that are really cheap, whereas in the other spectrum, you have a bunch of really large companies that are really expensive, and then everything in between. And then we look at the performance of these 25 portfolios, and then we look at the relationship between these portfolios and their CAPM beta. It basically does a, CAPM that is, does a terrible job predicting the future returns of these portfolios. And why is that? Well, predominantly, there's two outlier portfolios. The small value portfolio earns way higher excess returns than its beta estimate would suggest. Similarly, small growth stocks, or basically tiny expensive securities, do terrible relative to what they're supposed to do under the assumption of their estimated beta. So doesn't work, right? But obviously, if we throw in a size factor and a value factor, and the market factor, and then we go and try to explain the Fama French 25, it's going to do a much better job because now we have size and value kind of mechanically built into this relationship now. And so this Fama French three-factor model essentially rescue factor investing from the graveyard because now academics have a tool where with three relatively simple variables, one can predict out of sample how and why stocks are going to move the way they actually move. Research moved forward, and after Fama and French's 92 and 93 papers related to their three-factor model, they now had a tool to explain stock return movements, which opened up a whole can of worms on trying to understand active management. Do managers have skill? Are they just lucky? What have you. So researchers decide to apply these enhanced factor attribution or factor risk model tools to explain mutual fund manager performance. And unfortunately, the early results concluded that mutual funds seem to have persistent performance, even after controlling for size, value, and market exposure. Winner managers kept winning and loser managers kept losing. These results suggest that active managers may exhibit some level of skill. This is a big problem, though, if we're in a world where our prior is the market is efficient and we need to explain why it has to be efficient because active management just can't work. So and if active managers exhibit skill, this might imply that markets aren't efficiently pricing risk, which would mean markets aren't efficient. Now we have a problem. So in order to fix this problem, the research came up with a solution. When a factor investing model doesn't work, just to add more factors. And of course, I'm saying that tongue in cheek, but that's essentially what happens. For example, in 1997, Mark Carhart is actually a practitioner, a fairly famous, successful one, follows the academic factor research modus operandi and creates a new four-factor model. 
to help explain why active managers have skill when we all know that they just have to have luck to win. So Carhartt added a momentum factor to the Fahman French three-factor model, which significantly enhanced explanatory power of the original model. So what he finds is that it's totally reasonable to add in momentum because momentum has a low relationship with value, size, and the generic market factor. So when we look at this in a linear regression framework, we're not going to have any problems. These are four somewhat independent elements that we believe can explain all the high variance and noise that happens in stock returns out there. Carhartt applies his new four-factor model in the context of understanding mutual fund manager performance persistence. And what he finds is pretty interesting. So the key result from his paper is that past mutual fund winners seem to keep winning in the future, i.e. there's persistence. But reversion to the mean is pretty strong, and it's very difficult to distinguish it from other groups. So maybe not as persistent as we thought, but there's one thing that's definitely certain. In the loser bin, you tend to be a loser in the future. So winners, they look like they might persist, but they do mean revert very quickly, whereas there is this fact where there is persistence in loser performance. So really bad managers are predictably bad in the future. Carhartt investigates this finding through the lens of now his new four-factor tool, and he identifies some fascinating insights. Carhartt highlights that winning active managers don't win because they're skilled at identifying stocks that win, but rather, and I quote, some mutual funds just happened by chance to hold relatively large position in momentum stocks. So in short, winning mutual fund managers were momentum investors and don't even know it. And because these winning managers don't really know they won because of momentum exposure, we can't attribute that to their skill. This is a convoluted argument, I know, but that's the argument. And so the takeaway from Carhartt's momentum factor is clear with respect to understanding mutual fund manager performance. It's muddied with respect to how we can think about how his four-factor model in the context of using it to understand stock returns. Carlite even highlights this in his paper that the inclusion of momentum in his four-factor model is confusing. Because on one hand, his model could be interpreted as a risk attribution model that suggests that high performance is due to exposure to high risk, which is proxied by this exposure to beta size value momentum. On the other hand, his four-factor model could also be viewed as a performance attribution model, which doesn't really have a claim that size, value, or momentum reflect risk, but rather they just simply do a good job of explaining performance. And maybe that performance is attributed to these managers picking up mispricing, and that is what it is. But we can't say that they're earning higher returns because the market's efficient and they just have higher risk investments. You could equally say they're earning higher returns because they're taking advantage of these mispriced factors like momentum. Carr's paper leaves readers with a nagging question, are factor models really capturing risk or are they simply capturing mispricing effects? And Carhartt's momentum factor really opened up the discussion on the so-called factor wars because momentum or investing based on past prices went directly to the heart of the weakest form of the efficient market hypothesis. And clearly, researchers need to head back to the drawing board because one could not simply add more factors and claim victory that the market was efficient 
without first identifying why factors explain the performance and why that reflected a genuine risk premium. In other words, factor models can't reflect the game of throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. Economists need to get back to the drawing board to understand why factors matter in the first place, why they're pricing stock returns. The world essentially needed to move towards less data mining and more economic theory. Because the three and four factor models that were run show that for over a decade, clearly the world needed to move into a stance of less data mining and more economic theory before we were ever going to really be able to understand how and why stocks move the way they do. That said, the three and the four factor models kind of ran the show for over a decade following their respective publications. So from the early 90s through the 2000s, it was all good. However, within academia, Fahman French and Carhartt's factor model were generally considered to be part of the empirical asset pricing discipline. However, critics were concerned that data dredging drove the discipline and whatever results that had the highest T-stats won the day. So again, if your model doesn't work, just add another factor that has a high T-stat and victory. So at some level, there was nothing wrong with this approach. Understanding historical facts can be an important baseline for understanding of how the world works. And that's kind of really the core innovation from Thomas French 92. Correlation doesn't help us fully understand causation, which presumably helps us produce better, more predictable future out-of-sample estimates and predictions. So the three-factor model was a perfect example of the problem. The model was great at explaining stock market movements, but what were the theoretical underpinnings as to why size and value determine expected returns? Size could be understandable. Smaller stocks are less liquid, potentially have more business risk. Who knows? That Even that's controversial. But value was really controversial because Ben Graham had already talked about his hypothesis that value was an anomaly because Mr. Market was crazy, i.e. their sentiment mispricing. Whereas Fama and French wanted to argue that it was more risky. And so there was a debate. And the financial economics profession was suffering and needed answers to this debate. So first, their chairs cap M model, which was so elegant and grounded in rational economic theory, was no longer believable on empirical grounds. And now there's this three and this four-factor model highlighting that the stock market is more confusing than originally thought. Asset pricing theorists needed to take on the challenge of putting more rigor around factor models to try and understand why, for example, size and value were able to describe stock market movements. It's got to be grounded in risk somehow. At least that's what they needed to show. So the natural itch to have a sound theory behind a multi-factor model needed to be scratched. Luckily, neoclassical economic theories, in particular the Q theory of investment, which was originally advanced by uh, James Tobin in the 1960s, explored a fundamentals-based approach to reconciling market prices with investments in corporate assets. In, in 2007, the paper by Liu Zhang and Long Chen entitled Neoclassical Factors offered hints that a new combination of factors based on investment and profitability might explain returns better than the early ad hoc factor models. And more importantly, these models had theoretical basis that drew their knowledge from a different branch of financial economics, primarily corporate finance, 
not asset pricing, which many people consider data mining. So Lu Zeng and colleagues continued their research trying to build a unified asset pricing theory that established economic logic behind a multi-factor model that hopefully would do a good job of explaining how and why returns do what they do. Lu and his team set out on a stream of articles that hit on the same theme, but essentially changed titles over time. And the articles was first, Neoclassical Factors, published in July 2007. That evolved into another article called An Equilibrium Three-Factor Model, published a couple years later in 2009. And then it moved to Production-Based Factors a few months later. And then it moved to a better three-factor model that explains more anomalies that same year, changed titles to an alternative three-factor model. And then finally, three or four years later, digesting anomalies and investment approach. So as these new neoclassical Q factors were further refined, it became clear that they offered a powerful alternative explanation for the cross-section of returns that was actually grounded in risk-based theories, at least in theory. I won't say risk-based theories, but theories that are tied to economic foundations because a risk-based theory could be confused with a lot of the prior attempts at essentially relating the correlation of consumption with different investments and trying to argue that that's why certain things are in higher returns than others. So unfortunately, the powers that ran the top-tier academic journals were not interesting in rocking the Fahman French three-factor boat, which was kind of the king of models. And Professor Zhang and his colleagues had a challenging time getting their ideas published. But the situation would change when Fama and French decided to actually embrace the idea of creating an enhanced factor model, which ties better back to economic theory. Fama and French themselves adapt to new research findings. Perhaps seeing the handwriting on the wall that the three-factor model rested on a shaky theoretical foundation, Fama and French, almost what seems to be in a counterattempt to cut off the Q-factor model at the pass, offered enhancement to their three-factor model in hopes that Lu Zhang and others wouldn't beat them to the punch. So in 2004, the dynamic Fahman French duo extended their model to now include five factors. So and they added two more additional factors, operating profitability, or what they call robust minus weak, which is simply long firms that have high operating profitability and shorting firms that have low operating profitability and investment. Where this portfolio is long firms that have conservative or low investment policies and shorting those firms that have high or aggressive investment policies. And for those paying attention, these two additions to the Fama French three-factor model appeared thematically very similar to the new Q factors proposed by Zhang and his colleagues, where they have two factors that are also called operating profitability, where they use return on equity, which is a similar idea, and investment, where there is called real investment factor, but it's basically the same idea. So the question was, had Lu Zhang and company been cut off at the academic pass by Fama and French? We'll never know the backstory. Nonetheless, Hu Xu and Zeng ran a horse race on the competing factor models with a keen eye on their performance between their four-factor Q model and the new Fama French five-factor model. And the abstract from the Hu Zhu and Zeng paper says it all. 
The paper conducts a gigantic replication study of asset pricing anomalies by compiling an extensive data library with 437 variables. The Q-factor model and the closely related five-factor model are the two best-performing models amongst a list of models. Investment and profitability are the dominating driving forces in the broad cross-section of average stock return. The Hu, Zhu, and Zhang four-factor model captures all the returns associated with the new five-factor model outlined by Fahman French, but with one less factor. Simple is generally better. Interestingly enough, and in their paper, they highlight that not only does their model do a better job at explaining essentially how and why stock prices do what they do, but it also explains the five-factor Palma French model. So what's the point of their model if the Q-factor, four-factor model explains the five-factor model? Like, There's no need to have more factors if one with four can explain it all which suggests that Fama and French's quote-unquote new profitability factor may not be a new dimension at all because it can be explained very easily when you just control for market size and the who's, Su and saying investment ROE factors. So interesting enough, while the two research teams debated the merits of their respective models, one fact stood out. Both researchers found that the value effect, which arguably was the largest effect in the past, may not even be real. But how can this be? Value has always been part of the factor literature. The new factor research suggested that value was simply a proxy for risk exposures to profitability investment. And once you control for the new profitability and the new investment exposures, value really ceased to exist to have any explanatory power. In short, value is dead. The comments below, taken directly from the source papers, describe their findings. First, Fahm and French, highlighting that value is dead. With the addition of profitability investment factors, the value factor of the Fahm and French three-factor model becomes redundant for describing average returns in the sample we examine. Hugh, Xu, and Zhang take things a step further and says that both value and momentum are dead. So the alphas of HML, i.e. the value, and UMD, i.e. momentum, in the Q-factor model are small and insignificant. But the alphas of the investment and the ROE factors in the Carhartt model, which is the four-factor model that has found in French press momentum, are large and significant. As such, HML and UMD, i.e. value and momentum, are probably noisy versions of the Q-factors. In other words, value and momentum are not even real. They're really just rough proxies for basic profitability and investment type ideas. This obviously raised the flag for practitioners out there. Said, step aside, Ivory Tower. We're going to offer our opinion on this now because you people might be data mining or overthinking this a little bit too much. So at this point, the argument over the king of factor investing models was limited to the domain of uber geeks. Thalman, French, Hugh, Xu, and Zhang. Hugh, Xu, and Zhang models are arguably the best on empirical and theoretical grounds. But of course, outside of academic research circles, practitioners wanted to add their two cents because they also look at this. So, for example, there's a paper from a joint team of academics and researchers at Robeco Asset Management aptly named Five Concerns with the Five-Factor Model, which goes straight to the heart of these models. And I'll just do a quick bridge abstract. 
Although the five-factor model, and they're referring to the Fama French model, exhibits significantly improved explanatory power, we identify five concerns with regard to this model. It maintains the CAPM relation between market beta and return. Second, it continues to ignore momentum. Third, there are a number of robustness concerns. Fourth, the economic rationale for the two new factors is not really clear. And fifth, it does not seem likely that the five-factor model is going to settle really any debates out there. In a sense, they're saying, hey, this is a lot of data mining and overthinking, and I don't think you've really helped us understand anything. And of course, get to the punchline here, there really isn't a factor debate that's going to be complete unless Cliff Asnes and his team at AQR have a little opportunity to weigh in. And this whole debate has obviously triggered the big mountain at AQR. Asnes was struck by the reported redundancy of this so-called value factor described in Fama French and Hsu and Zhang. He just couldn't believe it. As a practitioner as well and academic, I agree. That seems crazy. So Asnes decided to investigate the issue with his own article. Our model goes to six and saves value from redundancy along the way. So first, Cliff replicates the Fama French findings. And sure enough, they checked out. The evidence also highlights that value doesn't matter once you control for profitability investment. But he moved one step further. Next, he considered the elephant in the room that all factor models need to address but rarely do, momentum. In other words, Asnes decided to see what would happen if he added momentum back into the Fama French five-factor model and created a six-factor model. Arguably, is crazy why they didn't do that in the first place because everyone already has known that momentum has always been one of the more interesting factors, but that's another side debate. So perhaps not surprisingly, Asnes finds that once one adds back momentum, it increases explanatory power of the model, and now it makes value seem to be redundant still, though, which is interesting. Was value simply a proxy, really, for exposure to profitability investment? Because if we add in momentum, the original hypothesis is that, well, value has to matter. Like, why is it not mattering? But Asnes wasn't done with his investigation, because with all this factor investing stuff, the devil really is in the details. So as this takes it a step further and says, let's actually look at the value factors construction. Because you, Fama and French, say you control for value, but let's try to understand a little bit more of what we mean by that. So as this and some of his colleagues in a 2013 paper entitled appropriately, The Devil in HML's Details, where HML is value, that went into the construction of HML. And they need two pieces of information to construct this. One, you need book value of equity, and you need price. Then they look at how Fahm and French do it. Book value, Fahm and French assume a six-month lag on book equity. So they'll look at 1231 data, and they won't consider that data till June 30, which makes sense because there is a possibility that this data may not have been known, obviously, on January 1, because a lot of times financial statements on December 31 won't be available for a couple months out. Assuming a six-month lag is conservative, but somewhat reasonable. However, on price, the other variable they need in order to calculate 
book to market is they also assume a six month lag on the price. So when they sort portfolios on June 30th on book value, they use a book that's measured as of 1231, but they also use a price measured at 1231, even though it's June 30th. Arguably, that doesn't make any sense because prices are actually known essentially every single day. Whereas you could argue that book value would have a look ahead bias. It makes no sense to lag prices by six months. So why would Fahm and French in their original construction set it up like that? Who knows? Why would you input a six month lag on price when price would be readily known when the book to market portfolios are formed? So let's just sidestep the inside baseball and reasons of why Fama and French rationalized the use of lag prices for sorting portfolios, which again makes no sense. And of course, Azus and Frazzini found that using a more realistic value sorting technique with actually using prices that would be known creates a much more effective and enhanced value premium, i.e. the devil in HML's details actually matter. And so a hypothesis that Asnus has is, wait a second, all of these factor geeks are using all these models, using this poorly constructed value factor, and they keep saying that it's redundant. Well, what if we actually use a more reasonable value factor, one that's actually measured appropriately, that has up-to-date price information and is monthly rebalanced? So this new HML factor, which we refer to as HML devil, they put this into the six-factor model, where originally when you use the delayed value factor, it does seem like value no longer matters. And as Asinus puts it, shazam, shazam, shazam. The HML factor or value factor is back, and momentum is now even more powerful. So value and momentum aren't dead. In fact, they're totally alive, even when you include these profitability investment type factors. So Asus argues that the way Fahm and French construct their HML factor diminishes the true relationship between value and momentum. After including a more pragmatic value factor, it is the investment factor that ironically becomes redundant now, not the value factor. And now we've come full circle and are back to where we started. Value and momentum are back as factor kings, but now we are faced with the original critique of the three-factor model. The empirical evidence is clear that value and momentum matter, but there are no rational economic theories that explain why. The Q-factor theory approach is a commendable effort, and more recent research here that actually just came out the last year seems to suggest that, again, we're back to the old debate that value and momentum are redundant. All these things have holes in them, and it raises the questions about both the empirical design and the theoretical foundations for the five-factor model of Fama French in particular. So what's next? We start off at the Jim Cramer decibel factor model. Then we move to the CAPM. Then we move to the three-factor. Then we add momentum. Then we dump momentum and add profitability investment. Then Asnes looks at those results and says, wow, that's weird. When we add back momentum, you're right, value doesn't exist. But wait a second, if we measure value differently, now value exists and momentum's even stronger. What is next with all this? The reality is these factor investing wars are probably going to last forever. So Hugh, Xu, and Zeng move the factor investing discussion to a higher level 
with their model, which is try to build factors from foundations. And they have taken on this challenge of trying to tie factor models to rational economic theory. Their approach outlines the Q-factor model, which uses two simple accounting variables representing investment or quality via ROE, return on equity. And the goal of this research is both create a theoretically sound factor model that was empirically superior to ad hoc factor models studied in the past. Their efforts are commendable and arguably influenced Fahm and French to develop their own five-factor model. But then evidence happened and behavioral-based explanations were never really considered. Small changes on model design, i.e. HML devil versus HML, or we could even talk about what about enterprise multiple factors, which is our favorite. We didn't even cover that. That's super strong in all these models. And so if we allow value and momentum anomalies to rear their ugly heads back into the picture. These tweaks also make the Q-factor model concept less impressive and are redundant, depending on how you measure it. So other research on the subject also shows that profitability, for example, is not very robust. If you go internationally, we found it doesn't even work. And other people have as well. So on the investment practitioner side, authors question the empirical validity of these findings. So other research on the subject also is skeptical of all these different factors, particularly in profitability, which many have found is not very robust. And again, email us and we'll send you five or six articles about that. And with respect to the investment variable, and at least in the Fama French five-factor model, there's multiple authors that question the empirical validity of that finding. For example, Foo finds that one controls for delisting data, you can dramatically alter their results associated with the investment factor. Also, Fahman French, who include investment as a factor in their five-factor model, published a paper in 2008 that questions the robustness of the investment factor, suggesting that it is entirely driven by microcap stocks, which is odd because now they have the five-factor model, which does include it. So despite the Herculean mental efforts on behalf of researchers to better understand how stock prices moves, it still seems that value and momentum are kind of the kings of trying to understand why stocks do what they do. And people now argue that maybe they're just proxies for something underlying them, but it's hard to deny that the puzzle's still out there. And it's really hard to deny and address this basic question of will we really ever understand why factors exist? There's probably hope. An alternative approach to all this is to simply change the mental model for understanding the theoretical underpinnings for factor models. For example, in order to explain the value and momentum factors, one must wander beyond the realm of traditional rational economic theory. To understand these anomalies, one must loosen theoretical constraints to encompass the view that investors are irrational, hey, you know, people could be wacky, and frictional costs matter. There could be limits of arbitrage. So just because people are wacky, that it could have mispricing effects if it's hard to take advantage of them or costly. You can still see issues in stock prices, and it's not like there's free money lying around because it's really expensive to take advantage of idiots, essentially. So this train of thought is often referred to as behavioral finance. But relaxing the assumption that investors can be irrational does not imply, as mentioned, that there's easy money lying around. And we've explained this in a piece we called Sustainable Active Investing Framework. However, relaxing these assumptions may help us better understand why risk or mispricing factors like value and momentum continue to stick in factor models. 
And of course, relaxing rational constraints adds degrees of freedom for modelers and makes the challenge of understanding reality more difficult. And perhaps this trade-off is best outlined by Professor Fama, his incredibly insightful piece, Market Efficiency, Long-Term Returns in Behavioral Finance. And here's the abstract of the paper, which I think we have to read because it's great. Market efficiency survives the challenge from the literature on long-term return anomalies. Consistent with market efficiency hypothesis that anomalies are chance results, apparent overreaction to information is about as common as underreaction. And post-event continuation of pre-event abnormal returns is about as frequent as post-event reversal. Consistent with the market efficiency prediction that apparent anomalies can also be due to methodology, the anomalies are sensitive to the techniques used to measure them, and many disappear with reasonable changes in technique. But for fun, I did a little thought experiment. What would happen if someone simply reversed the wording from Fama's abstract and communicated the behavioral finance message? I'll read this. Long-term return anomalies survive the challenge from the literature on market efficiency. Consistent with the market inefficiency hypothesis that instances of market efficiency are chance results, evidence that prices react appropriately to information are sparse. And evidence that post-event prices are efficient following pre-event information are few and far between. Consistent with the market inefficiency prediction that instances of market efficiency can also be due to methodology, evidence for market efficiency is sensitive to the techniques used to measure them, and much of this evidence disappears with reasonable changes in technique. So interestingly enough, the behavioral version of Fama's abstract could arguably stand as strong based on the collective evidence, if not stronger, than the statement put forth by Fama, which emphasized market efficiency. So my conclusion is that as we sit here and understand the history of factor research and factor wars, in many ways, my conclusion is that we are still a long way away from understanding the so-called science of investing. In fact, it's probably all a pseudoscience. We're probably better off understanding the insanity of investors and the incentive of delegated asset managers if we want to understand the science of investing. But this is controversial amongst many financial economists. I think Fama says it best in a recent interview with Joel Stern, where he even highlights from his conversations, where he just basically admits that this is kind of wild. After 50 years plus of research and refinements, most asset pricing models have failed empirically. He also states, estimating something as apparently simple as the cost of capital remains fraught with difficulty, which again, that's exactly what Warren Buffett said. And then finally, his final statement, the wide range of estimates for the market risk premium, anywhere from 2 to 10%, cast doubt on their reliability and practical usefulness. This is from Fama talking about all this research, basically highlighting it. It feels a lot like pseudoscience and we don't really know anything. So it sure sounds to me like we're about as close to understanding the science of finance as we are to understanding the science of astrology. And the painful reality is that factor investing is still mostly art and maybe just a little bit of science.
In conclusion, thank you very much for listening. I know this was a bit long-winded, and who wants to listen to really the history of factor investing research? But I hope you gain some insights. I hope you gain some skepticism. And I hope you focus on continue to learn and continue to get better. And we will talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.